Good morning, church. <clears throat> Good to have you with us today. Um, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to pray for us just once more before we dive into the text that Stephen just read for us. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your new mercies and your kindness. Uh, we pray that you give us eyes to see what is always there in the gospel, um, but what through uh, the work of the Holy Spirit you reveal to us in Scripture, uh, you reveal to us in the uh, exhuming of the sin in our own hearts, you reveal to us by uh, seeing Christ as more beautiful than we ever imagined. And so today, as we look at this story that most of us know, we pray you draw out realities of our hearts that we did not. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. We often hear of infamous traitors. Uh, William Shakespeare captured the, the shock and pain of this in his Julius Caesar when we hear that famous utterance like, you too, Brutus. There's Benedict Arnold, whose name has gone on to be synonymous with a turncoat traitor from the Revolutionary War. And even in our post-Christian world, uh, to go ahead and call somebody Judas uh, has a clear intent. Um, there's not many kids I've run into, even as we've distanced ourselves from Christianity as a culture, that are named Judas. It's synonymous with being disloyal, of betrayal. These men couldn't seem to shake their signature, signature sins. And today we read of the Apostle Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. And yet despite the weight of it, the reality of it, and the sin of it, his story seems to have a different ending. He isn't defined by his failure, but in fact, church history goes on to speak well and to shine brightly on Peter. So the question is, is what gives Peter a second chance? How is he able to rewrite his own story? If you've ever read Hebrews 11 and all the great by-faiths that are there, you might wonder if the author of Hebrews missed his Old Testament survey class. Because the people who are being affirmed in that text don't seem like people we'd want to see commended. He commends Abraham, a doubting adulterer. Sarah, a skeptical scoffer. Jacob, a deceitful manipulator. Moses, a stuttering murderer. Rahab, a pagan prostitute, Gideon, a fearful coward, Samson, a sex-addicted womanizer, and David, a political, politically savvy sexual predator and murderer. So how can the author of Hebrews commend such men and women? He says they are commended through their faith. And maybe you say, what kind of faith is that? That seems like lousy faith, miserable faith, wretched faith, excusing faith, sinful faith, broken faith. And maybe that's your question today. Maybe you ask that question for yourself. How can I, who have a faith that seems like that, how can I be commended? Or maybe you come from the other side of the spectrum and you know people like that and you say, how could they be commended? What right do they have for this commendation? And what we see in this uh, story in Luke 22 is what John Calvin says. He says that it is a bright mirror of our own weaknesses. This is not just Peter's story, it's our story. But if Peter's story tells us anything, it's that our only hope is in another author. The writer of Hebrews identifies this master editor who is able to come and he reveals him to us saying that this Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's to say that despite what we see in our text today, what we see in the book of Acts, Peter didn't rewrite his story. Jesus did. It was Jesus who predicted his fall, 
We saw that two weeks ago. It was Jesus who predicted his turning again and his repentance. And that's the beauty of the gospel. For each and every one of us, we write the opening pages in our sin, but the cross always gets the conclusion for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus finishes the story that our sin started. But you'll notice in our text today that there's no real narrative conclusion for us, is there? Uh, My daughter would stand up and just yell, cliffhanger! (laughs) That's a thing she's found out is a thing. And so this is a cliffhanger. There's no night, sneak, resolution. We won't see what happens. Peter just leaves, weeping bitterly. That's the cliff notes of the story. Peter betrays Jesus three times. Peter leaves and weeps. And so this story demands that we hold in tension the broader story of Peter and what we know to be true and what Luke has revealed to us up until this point, but also the broader story of the gospel. And when we hold those two things in tension, what we see is that our passage today reveals to us the nature of Peter's challenges, prepares us for our own challenges of a similar kind, all the while pointing us to the only one who can make everything right again. And this is our main point this morning. The story of our failures can be rewritten by Jesus's faithfulness. For those who come to Jesus in faith, your story can be written regardless of how deep your failure because Jesus was faithful. And so we look at this uh, part prescriptive uh, and part descriptive. And as we prepare for similar challenges in our own life, we're going to see two main points today. Uh, First, we're going to see half-heartedness and the fear of man. And then secondly, we're going to see hard-heartedness and the fear of God and the connection between each of those. So last week, Paul preached for us, and Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. And this week, in verse 54, uh, Jesus is being physically moved to the house of the high priest where he's going to await a series of trials uh, that's ultimately going to culminate with him on the cross. Starting next week, uh, which is the morning in the actual timeline, starting that morning, those trials take center stage. But Luke stops, and he puts Peter's trial at center stage in this evening. Jesus is going to be tried, but today we see, Jesus, or we see Peter's trial. And notice how he introduces this, <clears throat> beginning in verse 54. And Peter was following Jesus at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looked closely at him and said, this man also was with him. And here we see our first point today half-heartedness and the fear of man. Half-heartedness and the fear of man. Luke points out to us that Peter is following Jesus, but how is he following Jesus, if you have your Bibles open? He's following at a distance. There's a new sort of caution of apprehension, which Peter, the bold disciple, is now exhibiting as he follows Jesus. It reminds me of Lewis's book in the Narnia series, Prince Caspian. And in this book, uh, the four siblings return to Narnia, but things are different. Aslan is gone. He's missing. And the whole tone is different. The creatures that were once friendly and kind attempt to kill Lucy on the riverbank. The forest, which was once a happy place, is now a dark and dangerous place. Peter can feel a similar change as Jesus is now bound. Jesus is held captive. Last week, the, con- the conclusion of the Gethsemane narrative ended with Jesus saying, the hour of darkness has come. And in this hour of darkness, the freedom Jesus and his disciples experienced to go and travel and teach where they, in- where they had been 
it is now being taken over by an increasingly hostile people in an increasingly hostile way. And so Peter, in light of that, is following at a distance. He's going and he's sneaking in around this fire. He's following Jesus, but he's delayed so that he's not immediately identified with Jesus. And he slips in, he stands, and begins to watch as they light a fire, waiting to see what's going to happen next. And what's interesting is the culture that Peter is in is not too far different than our own cultural moment in the States. Peter, for most of his ministry, was in a Jesus-positive culture, especially in the book of Luke. It was the small minority of the scribes who were really upset with Jesus, but on a whole, there was great acceptance and great true uh, interest from the crowds. But now, all of a sudden, that pro-Jesus culture has turned, and it is now hostile. Those of you who've uh, lived in America, you know that for a time, for better or for worse, it was almost politically advantageous, socially advantageous to identify yourself with the church or with Jesus. But now it's less so. When we share our weekend plans with people, we tend to include every aspect except for what we did on Sunday morning. And Peter realized this tension too. And we often respond in a similar way of wanting to be near to Jesus but not wanting to be publicly identified with him. This is why so many people float in and out of churches instead of joining one. I talked to a brother who was uh, a missionary in Southeast Asia, and there were a number of locals who had heard the gospel and responded to it and indicated their keen desire to follow Jesus. And so they scheduled a baptism the following morning, and none of them showed up. And that's because they knew that in being baptized they were being publicly and visibly marked off to belong not only to Jesus, but to his people. And that brought them into tension with the physical world that they interacted with. They were distinct. They were no longer one of them. You see, the gospel gives us a sort of dual citizenship. And when we try to compromise that citizenship, it never works. It doesn't work first and foremost because in the gospel, we are made new. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We can't avoid the newness that Christ brings. He does not make us nice. He does not give us a new political identity. He gives us new life in him. But secondly, it never works because as we see in this text, the light of the world always catches up to us. Isn't that what happens here? Peter sneaks around the fire in order to fit in. But what happens? Luke tells us the fire lights up Peter's face and his attempt to fit into both worlds is exposed. And notice how Luke is grouping this insider, outsider, us and them language. If you have your Bibles open, we're gonna do a little bit of Bible study here. So beginning in verse 55, notice that they kindled the fire and Peter sat among them. But in verse 56, Peter is called out for not being with them, but instead being with him, that is, with Jesus. In verse 58, this division increases. Someone else said, you are one of them, that is, Jesus' disciples. And Peter responds by saying, I am not one of them. And so the question around this fire is, to whom and with whom does Peter belong? Are you with us or are you with them? And if you try to belong with Christ and with the world, you will eventually get found out. There is no safety there. And we will all try it. I'll tell it to you right now. Don't do it. And I'll go out and I'll do it. And you're going to go out and do it. But let's be reasonable enough to look at what this text is saying. Peter tried to have one foot in both worlds. And what happened? 
Well, he distances himself from the them of the disciples. And then the them sitting around the fire say, you're not one of us. By being half-hearted, he got a whole lot of nothing. He belongs nowhere. And he's only hurt in the process of it. Now, this doesn't mean we're not to engage with or live in the world. That's not the point. In fact, the Bible assumes that we will run into these moments of tension because we do live in this worldly kingdom. We do live with neighbors and coworkers and family members who are real people, but who do not see the reality of the gospel. And yet we, res- we are also citizens of an eternal, heavenly, gospel kingdom. You can't avoid this. It is a losing effort. But what we can do is prepare for it. While writing older and wiser, Peter writes to the churches who are in dispersion. And what's interesting is he doesn't say to the churches many of the things that if we were to, to talk about ourselves in our culture, that perhaps we would write. He doesn't call them fellow citizens. Instead, he refers to them as sojourners and strangers. They're in this world, and yet they are strangers to it. He goes on to say this. He, he says, in a sense, we're seeing him being caught off guard, but what does he want us to know? Well, in 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says this, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How many times are we caught off guard when our identity in Christ is being challenged by the eyes of the world? And Peter here is saying, this isn't a strange tension. This is a natural tension. This is what the gospel does. It creates new people. If you just want to be a better person, go join a gym. If you want to be made new, come to Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. We need to be wholly new. And the gospel is good to do that. And so instead of trying to avoid this tension, the weight of the Bible and this story here is meant to prepare those who are in the midst of it to prioritize who they will serve. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know if you know that. Um, Taylor Swift is probably involved at some point. But I have a quote from John Madden for us today. He says, if you've got two starting quarterbacks, you've got no starting quarterback. In other words, you can only start one. If you go through the whole of your life thinking that you can straddle those two kingdoms and those two worlds, what you fail to realize is at one point you're going to start one. You're going to choose whose identity and which creation you are, Christ's or cultures, God's or the world, the spirits or the flesh. And this is easy to see when we read the Bible. It's harder to see when we look at our own life. And that's because the reason why this distinction is so difficult to walk in is because it really is a hard distinction. It wages war on our sense of belonging according to the flesh. You see, Peter shows us why this was so hard. Just consider the truthfulness of everything. Was Peter with Jesus? Yes. Was Peter one of the disciples? Yes. Was Peter a Galilean who was part of Jesus' crew? Yes. Was it not Peter who a mere few hours ago told Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death? Yes. Was it Peter that John tells us goes uh, and takes a sword and tries to take on the armies of Rome? Yes. That was all Peter. I love the line in the play Hamilton where George Washington looks at a young, zealous Alexander and he says, dying is easy, living is harder. 
You see, we often fantasize about discipleship on the extremes, but we're often caught off guard at how hard it is in the mundane. And the truth is, how you respond at the extremes doesn't start there. It starts in what's ordinary. It starts in what seems to be simple. Peter didn't fear death, so he says to Jesus. But here we see he fears living in the midst of men who think little of him. He fears man. Why is it so hard to stand for Christ in a world that stands against him? Because we, like Peter, fear the opinions of man. We fear being a sojourner. We fear being a stranger. We fear being seen as weird. We fear being seen as a bigot or as whatever the world will call us. But it's no irony here that Luke begins Peter's inquisition right before we see Jesus's. And he doesn't begin with an angry Sanhedrin or a royal Herod or powerful Pilate, but with what? But with a small servant girl. How the rock of the church quickly seems to roll downhill. Listen to how Luke describes this, again, picking up in verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. I remember when I was in college once, I was in a class on uh, uh, reproductive health. And at one point, the professor uh, took out a bowl of male contraceptives and began to send it around the room, and he told all the men to take it. And uh, I remember seeing that bowl come to me with the full weight of a guillotine. <laughs> now, did I fear the bowl? No. Did I fear what was in the bowl? No. So what did I fear? I feared that my classmates would think different of me as they saw a perfectly, so I thought, socially well-adjusted college male who is declaring to everyone he would have no need for such preparations. <laughs> I remember as my non-Christian friend who was sitting next to me, the bull got to him and he shoved his pockets full. I don't believe in dispensational theology, but I was hoping for the rapture right there. <laughs> it's like, get me out of here. I want to be anywhere but here. I didn't want to be seen as weird, I didn't want to be seen as not matching up. I didn't want to be seen as broken. I didn't want to be seen as Christian. I didn't want to be seen at all. Students who are in here, specifically junior high or high schoolers, you're living in a different culture than even your parents were. And parents, do not be caught aware of this. The fear of man your kids are experiencing today is calling them to think, believe, and do things that we were not asked to do at that age. Kids, your parents might talk about it, your teachers as peer pressure, but make no mistake, the Bible talks about this as fear of man. College students, this reigns supreme even at the university campus. In fact, what social media has done is amplified the loudspeaker of popular opinion. The Puritan John Flavel wrote a great little book called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. It's very short. It's like 120-some pages. I would commend it to all of you uh, because there's rarely something more consistent in our sin 
than the issue of fear. Some of us sin because we have a wrong fear of God. Some of us sin because we have a wrong fear of man. But both are more connected than we think. Fear unaddressed distracts our hearts from our heads, and it messes with the function of our faith. Isn't this what it's doing with Peter here? We've seen into Peter's mind up until this point. But this slave girl and these two unnamed men of no historical significance caused the most mouthy disciple in the world to be made mute in regards to his faith. Now, the irony is, what we see at the end of this, is Jesus is right in the midst of them, the way the architecture was. They're they're, they're together. They're all there. Jesus was there the whole time. At any moment, Peter could have called out to Jesus, but he didn't. Why? Well, probably for the same reason we wouldn't. Because as soon as those chains went on Jesus' wrists, chains went on Peter's eyes. When it seemed that Jesus was held captive by man, God became bound and man unbound. Jesus was enslaved and there was a new power in town. John Flavel says this, he says, it is evident that fear exalts people and belittles God. It thinks upon a person's harmful power so much that it forgets God's saving power. In this way, a mortal worm which which perishes as the grass eclipses the glory of the great God who stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Peter's problem is not that he forgot his own bravado or his own game plan or his own glory. His problem is that he forgot Jesus's. He stood in that courtyard next to the greatest power in the universe. Though in flesh and in chains, here's the sovereign king over everything. He assumed that Jesus's power was ordinary and human like ours, and he saw it through the eyes of humanity. But Jesus reminded all of his disciples already at this point that this will get you nowhere. When we see things in the world according to man, Jesus is saying, you must see them according to the gospel if you want to gain your life. Jesus says this, he says, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit does a man gain if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, Peter misplaced his faith in Jesus. And instead of trusting in Jesus when things seemed hard with the eyes of faith, He trusted in what the world saw as strong, which was the mere opinion of ordinary men. He would be delivered by being thought well of these insignificant, small people. But it's here where I want to transition to our second point today. Because we do see half-heartedness and fear of man, but we also see in the midst of this hard-heartedness and fear of God. You see, it's easy to look at the problems outside of Peter, and it's easy to look at the problems outside of our own life. If we're keeping score, it seems the problems on the outside are always bigger than what's on the inside. Jesus was arrested, the guards were present, darkness was there, cold crept in, people were making fun of him. But 
Behind the externals of Peter's half-heartedness is a reality of hard-heartedness. Our sins are never half-hearted. Our hearts always run hot. They've got an on-off switch, and that's it. It's just a matter of what we're doing with that. You see, half-heartedness as a diagnostic tool for our own hearts. Half-heartedness is often the experience of those who have a hard heart toward God. James describes this in James 1, 14 through 15, and notice what is behind, the, the, the iceberg that betrays the tip of sin. He says this, he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we've all had moments where sin sneaks up on us suddenly like a sneeze. We didn't know what was going on, and then all of a sudden, we made a mess of everything. People are looking at us weird. We feel silly. But the Bible tells us that even when that happens, even when it seems momentary and spontaneous, sudden and fleeting, it is the sign of a deeper, slower problem in each of our hearts. How deep and how slow? Well, what's the language James uses? That it is conceived. How many of you women accidentally sneezed out a baby? without also going through the gestational process, the months, the growing pains, the feeding, and then great pain. He's tying this not to something that just happens, but to something that is being grown in the heart of those who do it. You see, uh, I imagine if I asked some of you guys in here what you would do if an attacker came in right now, you would have a detailed game plan of all of the objects and tools and things you would do with that pen in your hand to to foil the terrorist attacks. You you would hope that you would respond suddenly and quickly because of the hours we've sunk into Mission Impossible films or Call of Duty. We would want to respond in quick based off of what we have treasured in slow. And our last few scenes of Peter show us that sin often acts quick in the moment, but only because it grows slowly in our hearts. While Peter's actions have changed, his affections haven't. What has Peter been talking about this whole time? Himself. What is he arguing about? Who is the greatest? his own self-sufficiency, his own abilities. He was able to follow Jesus. Everyone else might fall away, but not me. I am the rock. I'm Peter. He drew his sword, of which they only had two, and apparently they gave it to the guy with the worst aim. And he's like, I'm going to do this. I'm lopping off ears all over the place. I got this. He was his own hope the whole time. But what's interesting is that our hope always adapts to the world we're in. When he was with Jesus and among the disciples, it was fitting that he would make much of himself, much of what he would do for Jesus, and he would be seen as great. But here, the culture changed, but the hope didn't. When he was in the courtyard, he boasted in his distance from Jesus, to what end? That he would be seen as great and not weird, as ordinary. You see, it was the idolatry of his heart that quickly adapted to new circumstances. Sin is a matter of affection before it's ever a matter 
of action, and our hearts are naturally gifted with the skills of a chameleon. Moments that seem to us in our experience, in our vernacular, to be crises of faith are in the end just moments where the object of our faith is demanding to be revealed. We aren't changing. We're actually just exposing what we already had faith in in that moment. You see, this here in Luke 22, verse 54, is not a different heart than Peter has in verse 33 when he's boasting in what he is going to do. It's the same heart that seeks self-exaltation and self, uh, uh, self-sufficiency. It's just seeking it in a new way, in a new culture. And this is why behavior modification as our primary means for spiritual growth will never work. Our behaviors always grow out of our beliefs. It's easy to change behavior. It's hard to change our hearts. Peter was here confronted with the reality that though his belief in Jesus was sincere, how sincere? Sincere enough, sincere enough to ultimately bring him back. His faith in Jesus was not as strong as he thought. There was need for both exposure and repentance. In other words, he didn't need his behavior to be changed. He needed his heart to be changed. And this is true for all of our sin. And Peter here shows us why this has to be true. We can notice three quick things about Peter's sin, or in his denial. First, his denial was willful. Three times he did this. It wasn't a one-time mistake. It wasn't a misspeaking. It was an intentional and ongoing false truth. The language of, and the triple denial is meant to communicate a full and willful denial. He wanted to deny Jesus. Second, we see it was habitual. If you have our Bibles open, look at how, to how Luke is talking about time intervals here. In verse 58, this is after his first denial, he says that it was a little while later that someone asked him and said to him, you are one of them. And so he denies Jesus a second time. In verse 59, there's another. Luke says, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man was also with him. What do we see here? He's not coming to his senses. He's not growing weary in his sin or talking himself out of it. He's not discovering this boldness that was always present in his own self-sufficiency. Time isn't shaking his sin. It's establishing it as a pattern. As time goes on, new stimulus is presented, new trials, and yet he returns in the same way. It becomes habitual. Though his excuses don't seem to buy him the relief he wanted by the fact that he has to go back to the well three times, he becomes addicted to it, just like we do in our own sin. And that's what brings up the third thing we see here is that this sin was consuming. Willful, habitual, and consuming. Like any habit that begins as a small choice, it quickly takes over our hearts and seems to consume and enslave us. We become voluntary slaves. I've heard it once said that sin brings us further than we want to go and keeps us longer than we want to stay. Notice how Peter goes, and each step is kind of this escalating and distancing denial. First, he denies being with Jesus. Then he denies belonging to Jesus' followers. And lastly, he denies being able to know anything at all. His reality was being enslaved by his own lie. He was beginning to believe that which his heart called him to defend himself with. 
and there was no end in sight. Mark even tells us that a rooster crowed a first time, and like a drunk person sleeping through their alarm, it had no effect on him. He was stuck in his sin. John Owen describes it this way. It says, sin also carries on its war by entangling the affections and drawing them into an allegiance against the mind. Grace may be enthroned in the mind, but if sin controls the affections, it has seized a fort from which it will continually assault the soul. I wonder how many of us have felt that way. Maybe you feel that way this morning. Maybe you've never outright denied Jesus like Peter has here, but as another Puritan says, all sin is founded in secret atheism. All sin denies the claim of Christ. It wages war against our mind by taking captive our sinful passions and desires and hijacking it. We can have an atheistic heart without having an atheistic mind. And that's the problem, is that life tries both of those. Paul himself knew this experience. In Romans 7, I'm going to hop around a little bit, but this was his general argument. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I wonder if you've ever felt that. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that's his, his hands and his feet and his physical flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It can feel for some of us, and the truth is, for any of us, that we are in this same mess. Either in wrestling with our doubt, our addiction, our sexual sin, our drunkenness, or the revolving door of any vices or vanities that seem to prey on our fickle, ever-changing heart, it might seem that we have no hope. But the rooster crows. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. How he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. You see, it's almost like Peter was snapped out of a trance. It's almost as if a dead man was made alive or a blind man given sight, or a deaf man to hear, or a slave set free, or any of the other analogies the Bible gives to the gospel. You see, the look of the crowds bothered him, but it was the look of Christ that broke him. Peter was presented with a new and greater fear, the fear of God and the knowledge of his failings. You see, though the cycle of sin was broken, the waves of condemnation and, and, and of guilt had fallen on him in full swell. He came to his senses and realized that his biggest problem in life is not the slave girl and what she thinks of him. His biggest problem in life is his relationship to God and what he thinks of him. 
He was with Jesus in Luke 12, where Jesus says that if you do not acknowledge me before men, you will not be acknowledged before my father. He knew the biggest problem, and he knew that he was the biggest sinner. He recalled Jesus's words, the very words which he said hours ago would not be true, and he felt the bitter weight of reality. Maybe you read passages like this. Maybe you read other passages which talk about our heart being uh, increasingly wicked, deceitful. Who can know it? No one has done good, not even one. All of us have gone astray. All of us turn to our own. And you say, not me. Other people, maybe. Generally, we're good. Generally, we get it. You might doubt it as well. But what Jesus says about you is always true. Peter realized it here in the courtyard. And one day you will realize that too. And someday, that day, will be too late. But so long as the rooster crows, so long as going back to the book of Genesis and the Noahic covenant, as long as morning and evening, summer and winter, day and night do not cease, there is hope. One day the trumpet will sound and we'll turn to Christ, but that day, if that is the first turning, is a day too late. But today, like an alarm clock for our sin-stricken soul, the face of Christ can awaken us out of our slavery and slumber. You see, it was not in the interrogation of the crowd, nor the light of the fire, or even the shrill of the rooster that brought Peter conviction. Instead, it was the face of Christ. Jesus predicted not only that Peter would fail, but that he would return. It might interest you that this is the last reference of Peter we have in the book of Luke. He doesn't show up on the scene. In Luke's narrative, this is where Peter fails and falls away, just as his faith seemed to do in this passage. But any reader of Luke's gospel knew the full story, for they read Luke's second book, the book of Acts, where Peter repented and humbled as a pillar of the Christian church. The readers knew that Peter did, in fact, as Jesus predicted, turn again. As was one commentator said, Peter was saved because he denied his denial. He recanted his recantation. But, notice the text. So that Peter would turn again. So that you would look again. So that any of us would turn again. Christ has first turned to us. He has looked sinners in the eyes and broken the spell of sin. Who can deliver us from the body of death? Who can deliver us when it seems we have no choice? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, says Paul. And while the look of Christ brings conviction, it's also the look of Christ that brings with it the promise of grace. So I was just talking with a sister this week, and she was burdened by her conviction of sin. And, and I said, well, sin is bad, and, and sin's not good. But if you're a Christian, you shouldn't fear the conviction of sin. You should fear a lack of conviction of sin. You should fear thinking that your heart is perfect and that you are the one among us who is already in his ultimate glorified state. You see, when conviction comes in the face of Christ, it is real and true because we have really and truly done wrong. But when conviction comes in the face of Christ, the offer of grace is real and true 
for Christ has really and truly come. Paul says this in Ephesians 5, verses 13 and 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We, by nature, in the purest form of our consciences, know to cover our own nakedness. We don't like light on our dirt or examination of our vulnerabilities. But for the Christian, it is the light of Christ that both exposes and heals John Calvin talks about the gaze of Jesus this way. When he says he talks, to, he looks at Peter like this. He says, but in looking at Peter, he added to his eyes the secret efficacy. That's the work or the effectiveness of the spirit. And thus by the rays of his grace penetrated into his heart. Let us therefore know that whenever anyone has fallen, his repentance will never begin until the Lord has looked upon him. Do you feel like your story is already written and like Peter, that it's already and only one of failure. Christ has looked upon you. Look to him. Christ's trials follow Peter's in the book of Luke, but Christ's trials have preceded yours today. He passed flawlessly. He died sinlessly. And he lived in perfect obedience so that those who have none of that might be redeemed by his faithfulness, not yours. You can find refuge in him, failures and all, because it's only those who see their failures who can find the door of the gospel. J.C. Ryle says this so wonderfully. He said, never had master such poor, weak servants as believers are to Christ, but never had servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ to believers. If you have never come to Christ in that way, there's good news today. Christ has come for you. And I would encourage you, if that's you, to talk to me, talk to someone who you saw on stage here today. We want you to know what it looks like to find forgiveness in Jesus, to, have, to, to recant your recantation and to find great peace in the gospel. But maybe for those who are believers, or those who come from the other end, maybe you're dull to sin. Maybe the idea of conviction is a foreign thing to you, and you're instead trying to just right, white-knuckle in obligation a life of discipleship. So too, Christ has looked upon you. Turn to him. You see, oftentimes we attempt to manufacture a certain kind of conviction by staring at our own sins. And we ought to see the weight of our own sins, but the Bible tells us how we're to see the weight of our own sins. Because sometimes looking at our own sins can become an, an equally as disorienting and equally as dangerous act of self-centeredness as Peter's. It can produce in us worldly sorrow at best, and no sorrow at worst. You see, it's not our sin in the abstract that leads us to repentance. Sin is not a thing. Sin is within us. The danger of sin is the glory, the beauty, and the majesty of Christ against whom all of our sin is committed. And when we see that all of our sin comes into focus, none of us, by seeing the grace of Christ, sees sin as safe. None of us, in seeing the beauty of atonement, sees sin as anything noble. 
In fact, Proverbs 16, 6 says, by the fear of God, men depart from evil. And so some of us ought to repent of having too low a view of sin. And some of us ought to repent of having too view a low of Christ. Because when we see Christ in all of his glory, sin follows in the weight of its scandal. So look to Christ. Some of you need to take your eyes off yourself and your sin and stare Jesus in the eye. A fear of sin that only comes when we have a right fear of God. So look at him. What do I mean when I say that? How do we look at Jesus? Well, I'd firstly say, ask Jesus to give you eyes to see. Pray for the rooster to crow in your own heart. And then take faithful steps, perhaps this week. Grab the person next to you, someone in community group, and do two things. First, confess your sins. Let's see how confident you are in your lack of conviction when other people are brought in the midst of it. (laughs) And then realize that God knows your heart. But secondly, read passages with them, like Colossians 1, and the great Christocentric conclusion Paul comes to there. Read Revelation 5, and the glory of the one worthy of opening the scroll, the lamb spotless and slain for sinners. Behold his glory, and trust that it will work its divine effect to bring you conviction and praise. As the old hymn says, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What gives strength to half-hearted cowards? What softens hard-hearted sinners? What rewrites the stories of failures? The face of Jesus Christ, the same one we denied. So come and look at him. Come and realize that our sin is only half of the story, and the cross gets the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, calling us to confess faith and also to be convicted of sin is to call humans to do things that are categorically beyond them. And yet you have called us to do it. And you've given us the gospel which enables us to see the Holy Spirit which awakens our affections and the church which holds us to such a true gaze. And so, Lord, may none of us realize that a right view of Christ and the hope that comes through him is nothing short of miraculous. May we see in Peter the fool-headedness of trying to straddle both worlds and instead see that we ought to faithfully cling to the one profession that truly saves. And that we know that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. So Lord, make us a church that embodies not only the confession of Peter, but a keen awareness of the denials of Peter. And that we have turned because Christ has first turned to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.